update. All right, we're gathered here this morning for equipping hour, and we're studying bibliology. That's the study of the Bible. What is the Bible? What is it like? And can we trust the Bible? Do, do we have an accurate record of the original scriptures? We're looking at all of those things uh, over these four weeks. This is part two. Uh, what will we cover over these five weeks? Uh, the importance of right bibliology, that was last week. Uh, this morning we're looking at inspiration. And then in the coming weeks we'll look at canonization. That is, how did we collect all the books of the Bible? Or how did we recognize which books were really scripture and which ones, which ones weren't? Do we have some in our Bibles that shouldn't be there? Or are there are some floating out there that should be in our Bibles? Uh, we'll look at that. And then we'll look at preservation the following week. Um, what is God's expectation for us in the accurate preservation of the scriptures? And what is God's role in preserving the scriptures? We'll look at that. And then in the final week, we'll look at textual criticism, which is the science of the rediscovery, as it were, of the original manuscripts. Even though we don't have the piece of paper that the Apostle Paul wrote on, that's not in a museum somewhere. We've got copies of copies of copies. Can we be sure that our copies of copies of copies are accurate, especially as they've come through translation um, and copying? You, you know that the printing press was invented in what year? Anybody know it off the top of your head? Really important date in history. Before I was born. Great. Yes. 1450. Gutenberg Press. So anything before 1450, if it was to be copied, had to be copied by hand. Pretty laborious task with room for errors. So how do we know that the Bible we're looking at today is accurate? Uh, that's, a, that's an important question. And, and maybe the first time you hear that question, it might be a little bit unnerving. I, I never thought to ask, is my Bible accurate? <laughs> I just believed it. Um, you're on really good ground, I just want you to know. Um, but what seems like perhaps an unnerving question at the beginning unfolds into a, a really remarkable confidence builder in the scriptures we have before us. And so we'll be talking about that the last week. A couple of volunteers, maybe a few volunteers. Ben, you can start on this side, Eric on the other. And uh, we're going to continue our little experiment. Um, When you get this piece of paper, flip it over, do not look at it. I know when I say don't look at it, the temptation is, I want to look, right? That's what the law does. The law goes out there and it entices what's inside us to transgress the law, and then it condemns us for doing it. Um, By the way, not looking at the other side won't get you to heaven, right? We just covered that last hour. But don't look at it. You're in trouble already. Don't look at it. I do want you to take out a writing utensil. Uh, Your task, uh, when I say go will be in less than four minutes to copy what you see. Okay, we did this last week. You didn't really know what you were getting into if you were here last week. We had things on the screen, and some of you had handout sheets, and uh, you were told just to write down what you see on the screen. Some of you gave some really creative answers. I'm not going to mention any names, Janet Anderson. But uh, I really appreciated the participation in all that. Um, uh, Let me just give you a few stats I received 138 assignments turned in. I graded every single one word for word. There was one correct page out of 138. And I don't know if you know who you are. Uh, A a second runner-up was really close. Really close. But uh, virtually all of them had errors. So your task this morning is to carefully, maybe more carefully than you tried last week, um, or as carefully as you tried last week, copy what you have in front of you. You, You're not going to look at your neighbor's paper. Okay, That actually won't help you, believe it or not. could hurt you. Okay, So you're not going to look at your neighbor's paper. You're going to look at your own paper. Uh, When I say go, and I haven't said it yet, uh, you'll have four minutes with which to copy what you see. Um, and just copy it right on that same page, Dustin. You don't have to have an extra piece of paper. Just right below on the same piece of paper. Okay? And uh, how are we doing distributing? Everybody have something to write with and a piece of paper to, to work from? Jeff Kershaw needs one. I remember your paper from last week, Jeff. 
Robert Hornack needs one. Rachel needs one. Pens? We good on pens? Need need some pens in the back row? By the way, some of you turned in partial assignments last week. Um, it, that's not totally worthless. You know, wh- whatever you've got done at four minutes is great. On your marks. Get set. Go. Mike, I do not accept late work. You've got uh, one minute and nine seconds to finish your quiz. You don't have time for donuts, Mike. Thirty seconds. All right, if I could have my helpers ready at the aisles, eleven seconds to go. You'll uh, pass your papers to the outside. If you violated the rules and you wrote on a different sheet than the original piece you got, I need you to kind of fold those together so they stay together for me. All right, turn them in. Leave that up to you.
Oh, that was you. Oh, okay. Actually, there were uh, there were five of you who wrote in all caps. I don't know who you are. I just know what you did. All right, as those are coming forward, uh, we'll begin our time this morning with uh, some submitted questions. And this, just a reminder, if you have questions about bibliology, the trustworthiness of the Bible, inspiration, canonization, any of the things we're talking about, uh, if you remember some of those uh, sort of trap you questions that you heard in, uh, in, your, in your freshman class at ASU or uh, you're in school now and your uh, teachers besmirch the Bible and they ask all these terrible, hard questions, um, you're welcome to submit those, uh, send me a text or an email, uh, and anything you'd like to ask, we'll cover in here. So here's a few questions submitted since last, since last week. Can I trust bracketed passages like John eight? That's the story of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus writing in the ground. Uh, and then the ending of Mark and, and you could ask several questions, which ending of Mark, several endings of Mark. There, there are brackets around portions of our English Bibles, and they'll have little footnotes at the bottom, text note that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain these verses. What do I do with that? Can I, can I preach those? Uh, can, do, I, do I trust them? Should I read them? Should I skip over them? What should I do with that? Uh, we'll talk about that in week five. So great question, and I'm... Whoever you are that asked that one, I'm, I'm going to defer. Um, anyway, we'll give you some resources uh, to get at that. So, sorry to make you wait. Uh, number two, if passages in Scripture are repeated, are they more important? And some examples are listed. Uh, something shows up twice in my Bible. Does that mean it's more important? Uh, you, you parents might ask the question, which of my kids is the most important? one. Which is my favorite? You know, that, that question's kind of off limits. It's not totally related here. Um, there are things that God repeats for emphasis. So for instance, if, if you take the, the, the commands to remember the Lord uh, in, in Deuteronomy, that gets repeated over and over and over again throughout the, the Old Testament. And the prophets actually look back at that command and they say, see, you forgot. And the whole theme of remembering and forgetting is this prominent theme. But take, for instance, the critical word propitiation. The, the New Testament concept of divine wrath satisfied by a substitute. That only occurs four times in the New Testament. Does that mean it's not important? Um, it's not exactly how we measure important things in the Bible. Um, certainly some things are highlighted more, emphasized more. Um, but mere repetition isn't the only key. But when something shows up multiple times, it's worth the question, huh, why did this get repeated? Or especially in some of these examples, why does the New Testament quote that Old Testament passage? There's something I need to look at here. Uh, and sometimes those really important themes are being traced through Scripture. We did that a little bit this morning in Romans 10 and from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So um, I'm kind of given a, a, a non-committal answer to that really good question. Are they more important? It's a yes or no question, and I didn't say yes or no. All right, number three. I've heard much about the need to understand the culture into which the Bible was given. Do you recommend anything in particular to that end? Yes. Her name is Lori Maxfield. She's our church librarian, and she can say, head to the library. Right? Is that what you would say? And, and Lori would point you, first of all, to the reference section in our library, which in the office complex is the upstairs loft area. All the way to the left, it starts with Bibles, and then it goes into Bible reference. And Bible reference would be things like Bible encyclopedia, Bible dictionaries. They are a treasure trove of background information. Uh, let's say you're in Matthew 18, and, and you're looking at the parable of the two debtors, and one guy owes a certain amount of money, and I don't know what a denarius is. I don't know what a talent is. How, how much is that worth? And the other guy owes a certain amount. Well, these uh, references in the reference section of our church library will actually tell you in a very short period of time that while the one dude in maybe modern terms um, owed billion, uh, $4.73 trillion dollars, 
uh, and then the guy he was choking out owed him 8,000 bucks by comparison. And, and you can do that by looking up what a talent is worth and comparing it to today's monetary system. So there, those things are accessible. Also in the library is a, a, a section of commentaries, and those are available to you. So you can go, uh, you can check out books from our library. Uh, you can sit in the library and read books. Um, and then you, you could ask my father-in-law any question you want, and he'll just tell you the answer. So, um, yes, Bible culture and background is important. There are things you just won't understand unless we cross 2,000 years of language, history, cultural, geopolitics that are really important. Um, you know, we read about the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Well, who are they? When were they? What is that all about? Well, there's a little bit of spade work to be done to dig up those answers. But it's readily available. It's not a big mystery. So I hope that answers something of that question. All right, what we're talking about this morning is verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, by verbal, we simply mean that the words of the Bible are inspired. The words themselves are inspired. Okay, we'll talk more about that. By plenary, we mean all of the words. Verbal plenary inspiration, if you hear that, just means the words of the Bible are inspired. Yes, all of them. Okay, that's what we're uh, defending. That's what we're articulating. That's what we believe the Bible teaches about itself. Now, it's important to think through what inspiration does not mean. Inspiration does not mean that men were inspired in a natural sense. I didn't need to do the air quotes because they're already up there for you on the screen. That's convenient. Um, it doesn't mean like Michael Jordan with the flu uh, was inspired and scored 40 points in a, uh, you know Eastern Division Championship playoff game. He was inspired. Or Leonardo da Vinci was inspired in his engineering or artistry or whatever. Um, that is not what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired. Also, we do not mean that the men who wrote the Bible had some sort of heightened spiritual insight. They had gone off somewhere to become some guru with just a treasure trove of heightened spiritual wisdom inside of them, and it just came out, and they wrote stuff. So whatever they wrote bore the marks of their inspiration. No, we're not talking about the men who wrote the Bible being personally, intuitively, or intrinsically inspired, but the writings of the scriptures being inspired. Also, we, we don't mean partial inspiration, um, as if... Uh, some of the Bible is inspired. You know, the, the parts that deal with theology and doctrine and spiritual life are inspired, but, but not necessarily the portions regarding geology, cosmology, uh, these kinds of things. What the Bible has to say about botany, eh, you can't really trust that. But the, the doctrinal stuff is good. Now, we don't believe in partial inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration means we believe the words are inspired and all of them are inspired. Next, we don't believe in conceptual inspiration. That, that what's at stake in inspiration is just merely the ideas, the concepts. The, the words and the details, you know, men wrote that, but, but the general big kind of vague idea, that's from God. And then men kind of had their own stamp on how they wanted to write it. Um, we also don't believe in dictation. That is that the, the Bible is completely made up of God said something and a scribe is just there, right? Okay, what was the next word? Okay, what was the next word? Now, some of the Bible is dictation. Can you think of some of those parts? Okay, yeah, the Ten Commandments. Well, I don't know if that counts as dictation because God himself wrote the first copies on the stones. Okay. Yeah, Revelation is a great example. There are several times where Jesus tells John, now write down these things. Um, when God gives a specific message through one of the speaking prophets and tells the speaking prophet to become a writing prophet, and the prophet writes it down. Uh, takes it word for word. Um, and th so there are portions that are dictation. But that's not the nature of most of the inspiration in the scriptures. And we also do not hold to, these are all the knots, right? But we also do not hold to the neo-Orthodox view of inspiration. That is, that the, the Bible was, you know, not really reliable. I mean, the, the liberals came along and said, you can't really believe in miracles. You can't believe in the virgin birth. I mean, that's impossible. Resurrection's impossible. Uh, the neo-Orthodox guys came along and said, well, we believe the liberals scientifically. But man, I want some of the, the heart stuff of what Christianity is, the spiritual good stuff. So neo-Orthodoxy came along and said, you know, the, the resurrection may not have happened literally historically. But the resurrection is a truth in my heart because the Holy Spirit made it alive there. 
That's neo-orthodoxy. And the view of, of neo-orthodoxy towards the Bible is the Bible becomes the Word of God when the Holy Spirit interacts with it and you in your experiential moment. Okay? That's garbage. That's not what we believe about inspiration. So what do we believe about inspiration? Uh, let's look at the Bible's own expression of inspiration. So take out your Bible to uh, turn to 1 Timothy and then flip over to 2 Timothy. And we'll look at, I don't know, 316. Yep. And Ben, you'll beat me there so you can tell me what page it is in my Bible. Thank you. That's where it is. Second Timothy 316. Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. That's the New American Standard rendering. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, when Paul says all scripture, I think he has reference back to two things in the immediate context. Look back at verse 14. He tells Timothy, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things which you've learned and have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God. And what Paul has in mind when he's saying all scripture is bundling up these two things in the immediate context. One is his own apostolic teaching. That is New Testament revelation coming through the apostles, coming through the apostle Paul himself, as contrasted with and in addition to what Paul calls the sacred writings in verse 15. That's a reference to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was sufficient to lead to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable statement of the New Testament's estimation of the Old Testament. And it uses a unique word for the Old Testament, sacred writings. Usually the Old Testament is referred to as scriptures. But here, sacred writings, so as to set it apart from what Paul says in verse 14 about his own apostolic teaching, which in Ephesians 2.20 is called the foundation of the church, the, the revelation of God through the apostles and the New Testament prophets. And so Paul lumps both of these together, calls them scripture, and then describes scripture this way. All scripture is inspired. And, and the Greek word there, you get to learn another Greek word this morning, is theopneustos. Okay, we get our English word pneumatic, right, where the P is silent. Pneumatic, which means air, wind, fluid, those kinds of things. Um, and, and can often mean breath, wind, or spirit uh, in, in New Testament language. And fronted on that, is theos, or God. We get our word theology, right? So theopneustos literally is God-breathed. God-breathed. That is something more like an exhale than an inhale. The idea for the scriptures is not that they're inspired as if, well, these, these guys wrote this book and then God breathed into it. Like, uh, the, 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 you know, the human body was formed and then God breathed life into the man. It's, it's not like that. It's not as if it exists and then gets breathed into somehow by God. That's inspired. No, it's actually the breathed out word of God. Every word of this book is what God himself has breathed out. That is the Bible's expression of inspiration. And I've actually crossed out the word in my Bible and written expiration. <laughs> All scripture is the breathed out word of God. I want you to look at another passage. It's up there on the screen for you already. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. So another expression from the Bible about what the Bible is. Peter writes, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And, and just to be technical here, he is not talking about how do you, the prophet, interpret Scripture. It's not just up to you. He's not talking about hermeneutics here. He's talking about how the Bible was composed, how it was written. And he says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, the Bible wasn't written because a guy just totally on his own sat down and said, I want to write some stuff and I think it's going to be in the Bible. Um, rather, men moved by the Holy Spirit 
spoke from God. This is an important phrase. Listen to this. Listen to the sentence, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What's the subject of that sentence? Men. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke. What is the scripture? It is men writing. Now, what is it about these men? They are moved by the Holy Spirit. They are born along by the by the, by the Spirit of God, the, the one who is properly the author of the Scriptures. And these men spoke, modified by a prepositional phrase at the end. How did they speak? From God. Did you catch that? Men spoke from God. So where's the communication coming from? Is it coming from men or is it coming from God? Yes. Yes, this is a, a remarkable passage delineating for us the nature of the dual authorship of Scripture. The, the dual authorship of Scripture, which is God is writing, and He's doing so by the instrumentality of His Holy Spirit bearing along men to write the Scriptures. Uh, is the Bible a book written by men? Yes. Is the Bible a book written by God? Yes. Right? Um, wait, 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 how does that work? I mean, mechanically, how does that work? How do you, how do you know if you're the one writing scripture? I mean, what, what does that actually feel like between your heart, your brain, and your pen? I, I gotta know or else I won't believe it. I, I don't think that has to be the territory we need to go to determine whether or not this is true. And, and if we have a problem thinking through, well, how can something be God and man at the same time? Well, we're in this whole thing because of Jesus Christ, the God man. Right? There's, a, there's, a, there's a trip up here for us in thinking about, well, how does this work? And listen, if you can explain the hypostatic union and how one person can be both fully God and fully man at the same time, if you can explain that in a way that satisfies my curiosity, whew, man, we'll write a book together, make a million dollars. The point is, we, we're just not going to be able to satisfy the how. We simply believe the what. Okay, so I want to offer to you um, Charles Ryrie's definition. I memorized this in college. Haven't found a better one since uh, of inspiration. The human authors... Oh, in the wrong paragraph. I, I really memorized it, I promise. I'll read it from the screen. God superintended human authors so that they, using their own individual personalities, composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. It's a mouthful. It's there for you on your notes so you can have it. Okay, some critical features of this definition is that God the Holy Spirit superintends. You think, well, man is sinful. How could God ever compose a, a, an inerrant book through errant people? Superintending of the Holy Spirit. That's the point. How, how could create, how could God uh, make a, a God-man that's sinless? Through the line of sinful humanity. Same question, different issue, right? But the Holy Spirit superintends. God is the one who does this. Uh, second key feature of this is that man writes using his own personality, vocabulary, and style. Uh, you read the Gospel of John, it feels and sounds different than the Gospel of Mark. Paul has different vocabulary than Peter. Moses sounds different than Isaiah. That's a recognition that God is using human instruments, and those human instruments have vocabulary and style and background and histories and personalities. All of those things come out. Luke was a historian and a doctor. Peter was a fisherman. Uh, their works kind of read like that. There are important aspects in addition to God the Holy Spirit superintending and men using their own personalities in this definition. The third thing to see is that this is the recording of God's truth without error. They composed and recorded without error God's revelation. That's critical. Were men writing? Yes. Did they do it without error? Yes. Did they convey God's message? Yes. And along with that, they conveyed God's intentionality. When we talk about the, the author's intent in Scripture, we've got to find out what did the author mean by what the author said. We don't put a line between the divine intentionality and the human intentionality as if God meant something that the human author never intended. Like there's some secret, mysterious, spiritual meaning that you can get that the author himself would never have known. 
No, the divine intentionality, human intentionality go together in the writing of the scriptures. And this comes down to the selection of the words. Again, verbal plenary inspiration. They composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words. Not the concepts, not the big general ideas, not some big fuzzy dot and and, and a guy comes up creatively and fills out the details. Let me give you a general plot and then when you uh, produce the film, you can sort of direct as you want. Uh, No, down to the very details, down to the very word level. uh, These are God's words. And then the last feature of this definition is this inspiration definition applies to the original manuscripts. Okay, Um, We're not saying that NASB 95 update is error-free. In fact, I would tell you that the NASB 95 update has errors in it. What my Bible has mistakes. I know that's unsettling and unnerving. But yes, it does. Textual criticism is the, the, the labor of the human side of preservation of the scriptures that gets us back to accuracy to the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Translators have the task of taking the Greek and Hebrew texts and putting them in the languages of the Doe people and the English-speaking peoples, etc., etc. And pastors and teachers have the job of making sure that they teach the Word of God. It's one of the reasons we put a high premium on the training of pastors in the original languages. Right? It's one of the reasons that Kyle Frazee is not going to sleep very much this next semester. Are you taking Greek and Hebrew this semester? You're crazy. We'll pray for you. Okay? But we put a high premium on that. It's really, really important. If someone's going to spend their life teaching and preaching God's word to God's people, he needs to make sure he's handling it accurately. And so the original languages are important in that. Um, the original languages become important for the work that our friends are doing in uh, the Finister Mountains. It's the reason that as soon as they felt the need and they saw a letter from the Doe people, they didn't buy a plane ticket. They stayed here, they learned Hebrew, they learned Greek, amongst a lot of other things. They learned how to, how to acquire and translate into a tribal language, which is a whole other art. And now they're laboring to see the scriptures in those languages. So... All that to say, when we talk about inspiration, can I say that that my English Bible in the 21st century is the Word of God? Yes, I say that with full confidence. And I can say that with biblical endorsement. By the way, when Nehemiah and Nehemiah 8 is preaching to the people, remember the rainstorm, all-day rainstorm, they stand for all day long listening to the Word of God. And what is he doing? He's translating to give them the sense. And he's giving them the very Word of God. God's Word calls a translation of God's Word, God's Word. So God is okay with us translating into other languages and still calling it the Bible. (laughs) Even though there's work to be done on the teaching, preaching, translation side to make sure we're doing it accurately. Does that make sense? Did I just scare you? We can recover. I think we can recover. Wait wait till week five. What I want to look at next is um, the Old Testament's awareness of its own inspiration. And we're going to look at several layers of, does, does the Bible see itself as inspired? Or did people, after the fact, kind of put that category over the Bible? Right? Well, what is the Bible's own witness regarding inspiration? And so we look first at the Old Testament's awareness of inspiration. I want you to think back to, to your reading of the Old Testament and just think about this phrase. Thus saith the Lord. How many times do you read that in the Old Testament? Over, I, I was going to try to do a search and count, and I just gave up. It's a lot. <laughs> All the time. The testimony of the scriptures themselves, over and over and over again, thus says the Lord. This is what God is saying. And he's saying it through a speaking prophet, a writing prophet, a book, a letter, a history. This is God speaking. That's the Bible's own testimony. Prophets, by the way, are said to speak for God. Turn your attention to 1 Kings uh, 14, 18. All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh spoke through his servant Ahijah, the prophet. Do you understand? A man is speaking. A prophet is speaking. But what does God say about those words? 
Those are my words. God spoke. God spoke through the prophet. God is using human instrumentality, human agency to accurately convey his words. And what's interesting about all of those is God holds people accountable to the words he says through prophets and through written things. Okay, another example, uh, 1 Kings 16, 12, a couple pages over. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke against Basha through Jehu the prophet. Okay, you read about Jehu, um, not a spotless record. And yet God is willing to accurately convey his message to the degree that it could be heard, understood, repeated, meditated upon, obeyed through a sinful guy. And the sinful vehicle does not tarnish the word itself. Again, God is superintending the conveyance of his word. In fact, one of the, one of the ways a prophet was to be tested is if someone said, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord thus not saith. You know what happened to that guy? They took him out and threw rocks at him until he was dead. That's a severe warning against daring to speak for God. And my friends, we better not do that. And I, and I used to be really careless about that. I, I would talk quite regularly, quite freely. Oh, the Lord's telling me this. The Lord's teaching me that. Whew, that's dangerous territory. Uh, don't, don't say the Lord's saying something that the Lord isn't saying. Uh, and we have absolute confidence in the word of God. And, and God himself places a premium on the things he has revealed, even when he has revealed it through a sinful instrument like Jehu. All right, Psalm 19. What does the word of God say about itself? We looked at this at the beginning of our time last week. All of these synonyms, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, judgments, they're, they're all descriptions of the Bible. And what does it say? The law of Yahweh is perfect. And what does it do? Restores the soul. Listen, it's error-free, and its effect is rejuvenating, life-giving, spiritually effective. The testimony of the Lord is sure and makes wise the simple. You want to be wise? You want to have wisdom? You want to be able to think God's thoughts after him? Trust God's word. It's sure. The precepts of Yahweh are right. And guess what they do? They rejoice the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean. It endures forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. And then the psalmist goes on and talks about how desirable God's words are because of what they are and the effects that they produce. This is the scripture's testimony about itself. Um, in your notes, you also have Psalm 119. So we're all going to stand together and read the whole thing someday. Not this morning. By the way, uh, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are both acrostic poems. And you wouldn't see it in English, but the Hebrew alphabet is laid out so that the beginning lines of each one of them start with the Hebrew letter. In fact, if you go to Psalm 119, from English, you can memorize the Hebrew alphabet. It actually is labeled at the top, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, all the way down the Hebrew alphabet. You can learn the Hebrew alphabet from English just by reading Psalm 119. And it was this visual reminder like the ABCs of the Word of God. And there's a short paragraph, all beginning with A, about God's Word. And then all, a short paragraph, all beginning with B, about God's Word, all the way down through the alphabet. That the scripture esteems the scriptures as God's word. What is the Old Testament's view of Old Testament inspiration? These are the very words of God. That's the Old Testament's view. Let's move on to think about the New Testament's estimation of the Old Testament. Um, how did the New Testament view the Old? We looked at 2 Timothy 3.16. What did 2 Timothy 3.16 say about those sacred writings, the Old Testament? They are scripture breathed out by God. Right? Peter affirmed the same thing. Um, listen to Romans 9. Uh, we were just here a few weeks ago. And what happens a lot in the New Testament is you'll get a, a New Testament point being made and then a quotation of an Old Testament text. And you get what we call these introductory formulas. 
an introductory formula that says, just as it is written. And that's a really common one. As it is written is a, is a remarkable, perfect tense introductory formula. And it has the flavor of just as it stands written. That means whatever I'm about to quote was written a long time ago and it still stands in its written form. There's something really critical about that introductory formula of the introduction of an Old Testament quote. The way the New Testament views it is it still stands with all of its authority, all of its truth, all of what comes in God's communicative act in that Old Testament text. It stands written. Listen, if you write something and you say, it still stands, that means it still bears the weight of the authority that you intended when you first wrote it. That is the way the New Testament treats the Old Testament. So look at Romans 9, verse 15. And the way he introduces an Old Testament text. For God says to Moses, and then the quote. So, in Paul's view, who is behind the Old Testament scriptures? God. God said this to Moses. This is God's word. How does the New Testament view an Old Testament text? It's God's word. Look down at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very very purpose I raised you up. Really interesting interchange in Romans 9 between God said something and the scripture said something. That's a remarkable equation. When the scriptures speak, from a New Testament perspective of the Old Testament, God speaks. The New Testament knows nothing of dividing out portions of the Old Testament as if some of it's inspired or the ideas are inspired or something like that. No, the New Testament has a high view of Old Testament inspiration. Give you just a couple more examples. Second Corinthians six sixteen. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. And then there's an Old Testament quote. Clearly, God is the one speaking. And then a last example would be Hebrews three seven, where the Old Testament quote is introduced with, "As the Holy Spirit says." So God speaks, the scripture speaks, Moses speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks. All of these are equated as God's word bearing the authority and weight and truth and accuracy of God's word. What's interesting about those last two that I mentioned, 2 Corinthians 6 and Hebrews 3, they both invoke a present tense verb. The Holy Spirit says, Old Testament quote. What, what do you, you mean the Holy Spirit is still speaking today? Yes, the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. Right here. The, the, the present tense is intentional. That it may have been written 1,500 years ago from a New Testament to Old Testament perspective, or from our perspective, 3,500 years ago. And it still speaks. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. How does the New Testament view the Old Testament? That the Holy Spirit is still speaking through God's word. It is God's word. It's alive. It still speaks. All right, one more category. Uh, what about the New Testament writer's view of the New Testament? I mean, did Paul know he was writing the Bible? Did, did the New Testament writers have some awareness that, that we're adding books? I mean, aren't there warnings about adding books? We'll talk about this more in the canonization talk next week. But um, you remember at the end of the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, at the very end of that is a, a warning. It shows up in chapter 12 and in chapter 30. Don't add to these words. If you add to these words, you're in big trouble. That's a paraphrase. Okay? And, then, and then you turn the page and there's Joshua. And Joshua takes that written book and sets it next to the first five books in the Ark of the Covenant. Wait, I thought we weren't allowed to add. That's correct. Humans, by their own will, no prophecy comes about by human will. But God can, and God does. In fact, at significant points in history where he redeems his people and then regulates them, he's revealing, he's adding revelation. You and I dare not add to the Bible, dare not take away from the Bible, but God himself does. And so in the era of the New Testament, the most significant revelation and regulation event in redemptive history to this point, God adds scripture. And, and we believe the New Testament writers are aware of that. Uh, let me give you just a couple examples. Um, let's start with Second Peter 3. 
2 Peter 3. And we're going to finish this in four minutes. Second Peter 3, verse 2. Peter writes, You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commands spoken of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Did you catch that? Peter puts on par with the Old Testament scriptures the things that Jesus spoke through the apostles. Are the apostles giving new revelation? Yes. Where's it coming from? Jesus. They're being born along by the Holy Spirit to speak from Jesus, to speak from God, to add to the Old Testament, to put on the same level of authority as the Old Testament. And then look down the page at verse 16. Uh, Peter in verse 15 is talking about our beloved brother, Paul, Paul, the apostle he used to be Saul. Now, Paul, according to the wisdom given him wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Listen, you can take comfort. If, if some things Paul writes are difficult for you to understand, it was true for Peter too. Okay. And he didn't have to learn Greek. <laughs> He acknowledges some things are hard to understand. The untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Did you catch what Peter is saying about Paul's writings? He calls them scriptures. He calls them scriptures. Paul's hard to understand. Some people distort his, his writings just like they distort the rest of the scriptures. Did the New Testament have a view that the New Testament was inspired, breathed out by God to be added to the canon? Yes. Um, it, the, your notes have a lot more references here. I want you to see 1 Timothy 5.18, and then we'll answer the, 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 the gotcha question in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay, you have two clauses which serve as direct objects of one verb. Okay, the, the one verb is says, the scripture says, one and two. Okay, so whatever follows, both of them are considered in, in 1 Timothy 5.18 to be scripture. Whatever follows, both of them are scripture. Okay, and what are these both things? You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. Scripture. That's a New Testament estimation of an Old Testament text as the very word of God. And the second one, the labor is worthy of his wages, is Luke 10.7. It is an exact quote in Greek of Jesus in Luke 10.7. What is Paul saying? From 1 Timothy 5.18, a New Testament text reflecting on an Old Testament text and a New Testament text, they are Scripture. Is the New Testament aware that the New Testament is breathed out by God? Yes. Yes. Um, and, and the other ones on your notes, um, I believe, are pretty self-explanatory uh, to get you to that same conclusion. Um, maybe with one exception, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 13 seconds. I'm going to answer this doozy. I'm not really. I'm going to go over one extra minute. I need a minute. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says uh, in verse 37, that's not the verse I'm looking for. Oh, verse 12. Okay. To the rest, I say, not the Lord. This is Paul writing. Did you catch that? Paul's writing a book of the Bible that we're claiming is breathed out by God. And he says, I'm writing it. I'm saying this to you. I'm commanding this of you. Not the Lord. Wait a second. God's not writing this, but Paul is. See? <laughs> Paul knows he's not writing the Bible, or he thinks he's not writing the Bible. But if he thinks he's not writing the Bible, but it turns out he is writing the Bible, then he's in error, and then the Bible's in error, and then we have a problem. <laughs> Do you catch the dilemma? What's going on here? Um, we didn't get to this this morning. Um, we will talk about it next week from Romans 10. But... Uh, 6,000 times in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh is used to, is used, the translation of the word Yahweh is the Greek word kurios or Lord. 
And it's true that there are times in the Bible where Lord can just refer to somebody of a superior rank, you know, your boss or some nobility. Yes, my Lord, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but every time it's the Lord, you're talking about something totally unique. And that the Bible would use that which is used 6,000 times in the Old Testament to ascribe to Yahweh, used almost exclusively in the New Testament of not God the Father, only once of God the Holy Spirit, and overwhelmingly of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord? The Lord Jesus. Overwhelmingly in the New Testament. And if you want to make a case that Lord in the New Testament means someone other than the second person of the Trinity, you need to have strong contextual reasons for doing it. All that to say, uh, Lord here, um, I say this, not the Lord, simply means Jesus. Is that my alarm? Somebody needs to go to lunch. Okay. I thought it was my phone. Um, Jesus gave personal revelatory commands to Paul about lots of specific things. Remember that Paul got his own kind of personalized seminary degree under Jesus in the desert. Jesus revealed himself personally to Paul at Damascus and then following and gave him a catch-up education on the years that he missed out on as an apostle untimely born. Paul had lots of personal interaction with Jesus where Jesus says this, this, and this. And Paul is clearly relaying some of those direct commands that he got from Jesus personally. And he's relaying other things that he's being borne along by the Holy Spirit to superintended to write God's words in 1 Corinthians. And so the irony is Paul is not disassociating himself from Scripture. He's actually elevating his own apostolic writings to the same level of Jesus. Because what's required after these things is obedience to the very word of God for the things he recommends, commands. Do you understand the, the, the dilemma is not really a dilemma here. In fact, it proves the opposite. That the, the, Paul's own estimation of his own writings in the New Testament is at the same level as the direct commands he received from the Lord Jesus about marriage and divorce. So, okay, that's all we have time for. That, maybe that opened more questions for you. Submit questions if you want. We'll come back next week. We'll continue with canonization.